Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violet Podcast, in which we finally address the elephant in the room as far as current affairs is concerned and talk about vaccinations, their history and the opposition to them. We also get sidetracked by quite a long discussion about freedom of speech and I consistently get the words vaccine and virus mixed up. As with all things, I'm going to blame lockdown for that one. We also briefly revisit last week's material in response to a listener's question. So if you have any questions for us, comments or topics that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, please do get in contact with us. You can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. You can tweet us at underscore theviolet underscore, or you can visit the website www.theviolet.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. So as we always say, we're happy to take questions from our listeners. Uh, We have one this week from Rita talking about the Myanmar situation. Uh, The question is, do you think that the current mass protests will make any difference to the situation Uh, Or will they just make matters worse? Um, It's not a cop-out, but it is the first thing we should say whenever there's a question about what will happen, which is, we don't know. Um, Of course we don't know. Uh, And there are multiple different things that could could potentially happen. Certainly, the Burmese army has a history of putting down protests violently. Um, If we look at the historical record, protesters in Burma have never managed to... um, bring about a massive upheaval to change the government through protest before. Um, But of course, just because something hasn't happened in the past doesn't mean it might not happen in the future. And so far, the army's attempts to control the uh, protests have been non-lethal as far as I'm aware. Mostly rubber bullets, uh, tear gas, some hand-to-hand fighting, but I don't think anyone has been killed yet. However, I don't think there's anyone who... um, believes that the Burmese army is above using force. Um, And the longer the protests go on, the more likely it becomes that the Burmese army will start to try to control these protests with um, bullets rather than riot shields. The question of what happens then, whether there is sufficient political will for Burmese society to continue to resist the army or not, uh, we don't know, is, is my short answer. Um, I, I would have to echo that and, and say that there's a, a large degree of uncertainty here. A lot of what happens next, I think, rests on the international community's response to the protests and whatever the Burmese military's ultimate response is. A few minutes ago, before we started recording this, the UK placed sanctions on three Burmese military officials. Uh, and I know that the Biden administration in the US is considering doing a similar thing. Um, China has not been particularly vocal in defending uh, the military coup. Uh, Russia has um, said that this is a purely sovereign internal matter for Myanmar, but given the geographical location of Myanmar, China is the one that really matters here. So I think that if if there is an international concerted effort to back the process and to condemn the coup, then there's a high chance that, that, the, that the process will have a significant effect. Uh, if the international community is, is largely silent or distracted by other things, then I don't think there will be the political will uh, to make lasting changes. Which of those two things happens, I'm not really sure. (laughs) 
So as always, before we get into the particulars of the event that we're talking about in today's contemporary world, uh, it's useful to have a look back at the historical context uh, of, of that event or that phenomenon. So yeah, what's a, what's a brief history of vaccines then? So the traditional history of vaccines, at least in the West, starts with a man called Edward Jenner, um, who in 1796 showed that he could prevent people from catching smallpox. Um, younger listeners may not be aware of smallpox as a disease, but um, throughout history, and there's a lot of historical record of people catching smallpox or things that historians now think is smallpox, um, smallpox has been a scourge on humanity. Um, a paper by Donald Henderson estimates that smallpox throughout history has caused on average 500 million deaths per century. So this is not um, this is not the sniffles, this is not a minor disease that only happens in one particular area or in one particular climate. Smallpox was a massive disease that killed hundreds of millions of people and was prevalent around the world. And what Jenner did, uh, as many people will remember from GCSE science lessons, uh, is he noticed that people who worked on dairy farms, uh, who worked in close connection with cows and who often caught cowpox, which was a similar but far, far less deadly uh, disease, never caught smallpox. Uh, and he established the idea of vaccination. In fact, the word vaccination comes from the French and the Latin for cow. Um, as a very, very simplistic idea that if we gave people uh, cowpox, they would then not get smallpox. And cowpox is unpleasant. You feel a bit rotten for a few days. You come out in lumps, much like chickenpox, and it's a bit itchy and unpleasant but you get over it. It's got a very, very low fatality rate, whereas smallpox's fatality rate is massive. So after Jenner's experiments with, with cowpox and smallpox and the proof of concept of vaccination, it took another century or slight, slightly less than a century uh, for smallpox to first be eliminated in a country. Sweden was the first to do it. Sweden was able to do that because of relatively high incomes uh, in the country, relatively uh, good access to what was at the time advanced technology um, and a relatively small population compared to larger empires and countries at the time. Um, and smallpox was finally eradicated as a global disease in, in uh, the 1980s as a result of a concerted worldwide global campaign of vaccination. And smallpox to this day remains the only human disease, as in a uh, disease that predominantly or or strictly affects humans, uh, to have been completely eradicated. Smallpox now no longer exists. Uh, it is impossible for you to catch it because the um, germ, I don't actually know if it's a virus. virus or a bacteria, but I'm pretty sure it's a virus, um, <laughs> uh, no longer exists. The only other disease that humanity has managed to uh, eradicate is a disease called rinderpest, which strictly affects, ironically, cows. So I guess returning the favour. <laughs> returning the favour, absolutely. And it's worth taking a moment at this point to think about what a massive event in human history the eradication of smallpox is. Because every other uh, disease that has ever affected humans, we have managed to potentially find 
some sort of cure, potentially find some sort of treatment that means it's not a serious problem. Um, but people continue to catch it and those treatments continue to need to be given out. Uh, or we might have managed to severely reduce the extent to which people pick something up through better infrastructure, clean drinking water, for example. A lot of diseases are spread through dirty drinking water. And so as long as people have access to, to clean water in taps, they'll be fine. But Nevertheless, there is a continued need to put resources into the treatment and the prevention of every other disease. Smallpox does not use up any of the world's resources anymore. No doctors need to learn how to prevent it. No drugs need to be developed to treat it. Nobody needs to worry about whether or not they will be treated for smallpox when they catch it. It does not exist. We cannot catch it. And Everyone who is alive today and everyone who will ever be alive for the rest of history owes a debt of gratitude to the people who um, came together to eradicate smallpox because that problem is not just under control, it has ceased to exist. And therein lies the power of vaccination as a medical tool in that it doesn't just... Um, reduce suffering, it doesn't just remove the disease from some people or certain populations, it has the power, the ability to prevent the disease from ever recurring and to create enormous um, amounts of human well-being. I think the reason why people don't necessarily notice this though is because if we don't look at the historical record and we don't realise what a problem smallpox was and why it no longer exists, we have a tendency to see the world around us as the norm. And so um, as smallpox was eradicated in 1980, a lot of our younger listeners may not even have heard of it, may not even realise it ever existed and not realise how beneficial they are in not being able to catch it. But also because we have a tendency, we all have a tendency to notice events that do happen and to not think about the potential occurrences that may have happened but haven't. And so while we are rightly predisposed with all the people around the world who are unfortunately dying of malaria and tuberculosis and um, other massive problematic diseases, we don't necessarily, until someone points it out to us, take the time to stop and think about the absence of smallpox and all of the benefit that that is bringing. So we talked about the eradication of smallpox globally, the fact that you can't catch it anywhere in the world as a human being. Um, there are other diseases that through the power of vaccinations we've been able to eliminate in certain countries. Uh, for example, polio in, in 1982 in the UK. Uh, polio is a, a disease, a viral infection, which attacks uh, the muscles and causes paralysis and weakness um, in, in its early stages, meaning that the legs are so severely weakened that the person who has it can't walk. Uh, at its most serious, meaning that the muscles in your in your upper chest not functioning properly uh, stop you from being able to breathe and you you effectively die from suffocation um, and that's again something which doesn't exist at all in the UK anymore at the moment it only exists in very uh, distant tribal rural parts of Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan and it used to exist in, in Nigeria until quite recently uh, but was eliminated there also um, other things for which we have vaccinations, like uh, the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella, uh, those are also very dangerous, potentially lethal diseases, which we've uh, eliminated in large parts of the world, um, not completely eradicated yet, but are on the way there. And the primary reason that those diseases haven't yet been eradicated 
is because of vaccine denialism and a resistance to believing that vaccines are effective in eliminating those diseases. So polio, as I said, still exists in areas of, of Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, largely because the Taliban have argued that it's a CIA American plot to sterilize Muslims and kill them off slowly. Uh, and that's been the driving factor behind resistance to vaccines in, in that part of the world. Um, measles still exists uh, because there is resistance to the MMR vaccine. There is a discredited, uh, a now very heavily discredited piece of research which suggested there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism, uh, which led to many people across the world, especially in the Western world, uh, not having their children vaccinated. And that's a slightly larger problem than than polio, because polio only affects a few hundred people of that a year, um, whereas measles in, in 2019 killed, I think, over 200,000 people. And that's because opposition to the MMR vaccine is far higher than opposition to the polio vaccine. But while polio and measles and indeed mumps and rubella are horrible diseases enough in their own right and people's refusal to take vaccines for those is a problem in its own right that is not particularly um, of interest this week. Of course, we now have COVID-19 globally uh, and a variety of vaccines now available for that. So the extent to which people are willing to take vaccines is now directly linked to the speed at which we can return our economies and lives and everything else to something that might be approaching normal. So it's important for us to uh, get into the nitty gritty of why people don't understand or don't believe or are fully committed to uh, not believing the efficacy and importance and benefit of vaccinations. Yeah, and I think one thing to to remember here is that anti-vax as a movement is not something which is a modern phenomenon. Arguably, it has been amplified by social media and the ability of people to, to spread misinformation very quickly globally through a digital sphere. But opposition to vaccination is nothing particularly new. Uh, it's almost as old as the history of vaccines themselves. So as soon as Jenna came up with the, the cowpox smallpox vaccine, there was there was immediate backlash to that. Uh, at the time in in eighteen hundreds Britain, uh, many cartoons were published of people hideously deformed, uh, growing cow shaped tumors out of their arms and backsides and heads as a result of having his his cowpox smallpox vaccine. Um, there were cartoons of small children being fed into a crocodile like cow monster, uh, as if to imply that taking the vaccine was was sacrificing these children. Um, to some monstrous diseased entity. Um, on top of that, there were religious objections to, to vaccination, claiming that using material derived from cows to prevent a disease uh, was ungodly and went against God's plan uh, and was using lesser animals to, to corrupt human nature. And these culminated in a series of quite, uh, quite widespread and large-scale protests in the late 1800s across the UK, most notably, I think, in, in Leicester, in 1885 as a response to the British government having made smallpox vac vaccination compulsory across the UK. So the fact that the anti-vax movement has been around for a very long time tells us that it's not um, a modern phenomenon and the source of 
these people's beliefs uh, is not something new. It's it's not a product of the internet. It's not a product of social media. Um, but that doesn't actually answer the question of why do people believe that vaccines don't work? And I think to a large extent, this is a product of wider beliefs and conspiracy theory or um, believing in these these grand plots or plans uh, either orchestrated from above or by some exterior uh, some exterior external force um, against the society and, and a country and its people. I think very broadly in terms of why people believe in conspiracy theories, it's about a distrust of government and a distrust of authority. In some cases, you could argue well-founded. So if you look at areas of the world in which uh, anti-vaccination beliefs or anti-vaccine conspiracy theories are widespread, uh, the former Soviet Union stands out, uh, especially Ukraine and Russia, and that's partially because of the legacy of the the overreaching Soviet government there. Um, France is another example that stands out. I've never really fully understood French political culture, but there, there is, of course, a, a tendency towards distrusting the government or even executing the government at its most extreme. Uh, and also, I think, in places like the USA, which is not really amongst the worst places in the world for anti-vax conspiracy theories per capita. Um, but the US, which has a tradition of rugged individualism and, again, distrust of the central federal government, also has quite high rates of opposition uh, to the vaccine or, or to vaccines uh, and a belief that any uh, kind of central government directive must have some nefarious ulterior motive. Of course. Um I think in the case of vaccines specifically, there is also a, a sort of a critical thinking issue here of people not necessarily being able to understand the effect of vaccines um, for two reasons which are pervasive in our lack of understanding of lots of things. Firstly, that establishing cause and effect is always easier if they happen immediately one after the other. If you see... Um, something happen and then see its result immediately afterwards over and over again you begin to associate to uh, sort of the most extreme example you touch something that's too hot you burn yourself straight away you're, you're left in no doubt as to what causes burns it's touching hot things because the the result is immediate and part of the reason why i think people struggle to understand vaccines is because the effect doesn't happen for a very very long time you know you might you might be vaccinated against mumps as a child, measles as a child, and you only actually come into contact with the measles virus 40, 50 years later, um, and the virus protects you against against actually contracting it properly. Um, so not being able to see the effect straight after the cause, and, and there being that huge, potentially massive gap, I think is one reason. The second reason is, and I mentioned this earlier, that we have a tendency to prioritise things that we do observe over the things that we know could have happened or may have happened, but that we didn't observe and didn't happen. Um, and I think that's the, the biggest issue, is that nobody actually knows, nobody feels when they come into contact with the measles virus and don't get the disease. Nobody is aware that rubella floated up their nose and was immediately attacked by their white blood cells that have been trained by the vaccine. We can't feel or see the virus working, um, and that makes it harder for people to believe that it actually is. So I guess the only time you can really physically observe those consequences and the lack of the consequences and compare the two is if there are a large number of people who 
who aren't uh, fully vaccinated or a large number of people that you've known of in the past who weren't vaccinated and did get this disease, which is why I suppose in many parts of the developing world um, across sub-Saharan Africa, the belief in the effectiveness of vaccines is incredibly high because those are, are people who within living memory have seen people die or suffer horribly from things like measles or, or polio uh, and have also seen people get vaccinated and not get those things and therefore believe in the effectiveness of vaccines. Whereas in the West where um, these these diseases have been almost totally eliminated, we don't really have those comparative frameworks of reference. Exactly. And that's definitely the reason why anti-vaxxers are a predominantly, although not at all entirely, but a predominantly first world problem is that smallpox no longer exists here. Polio no longer exists here. For a lot of people, for a lot of our listeners, certainly polio is is not something that has existed um, in their world in living memory. Uh, But in a lot of other parts of the world, unfortunately, it is. But as people have been able to observe the change that's been brought about by those vaccinations, they have faith in in the fact that they work. Um, And that leads me back to the point that I made earlier about the importance of not necessarily delving into, but having an understanding of the broad narrative of the historical data. Because even though you can't see for yourself smallpox eradication, um, we can't travel back in time and see it, a very quick look at a graph of smallpox um, uh, deaths globally with vaccination drives marked on it leaves you in absolutely no doubt that um, vaccinations work. I think at this point it is worth noting that some groups do have what you might call a well-founded fear uh, of the government, as, as I previously mentioned in the former Soviet Union, uh, but also in places like the, the United States. So one infamous case of this was the Tuskegee experiment in Alabama, where the US government said that they were going to provide treatment for syphilis in a number of African-American volunteers, um, but didn't actually treat quite a lot of them, keeping them as a control group so that they could compare the effects of untreated syphilis to treated syphilis. And those people obviously then uh, went on to give it to other people unknowingly, which is why perhaps there is uh, such a fear of uh, government health programs from parts of the African-American community in the southern United States. As we've said in various articles on the website, of course there are different issues that we have to think about critically on their own terms, and just because the US government did that in the past doesn't mean it's doing it now. Um, But it's it's easy to see how people can buy into those narratives uh, because people think in frameworks rather than based on individual case-by-case analysis. Uh, In the In the example mentioned previously of the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, telling people that, you know, polio uh, eradication is a plot by the US government to sterilize Muslims, obviously not true, um, but lent credence by the fact that the United States set up a fake vaccination clinic uh, to try and track bin Laden in the the 2000s. So whilst it is easy to pin uh, the large or or the, the, the main bulk of the anti-vax conspiracy theory as a first world problem or a first world luxury, uh, I think it's also worth noting that there are groups with well-founded distrust or, or fears of, go- of, of government and government overreach, which uh, we have then attached that to the vaccination issue. And I think there's a broader important point to be made here about how to convince people who have um, 
objectively definitely mistaken views about the world that their views are mistaken and especially in the case of conspiracy theories a lot of people have a um a huge emotional connection to the belief that they have um often these conspiracy theories are on you know major massive things that are obviously not real but which if they were real would be very important would be horrific abuses of power would be uh massively important for us to do something about the very emotive you know um a sterilization drive by the CIA to try and eradicate islam that's if that is real that is something that we need to be doing something about it's obviously not real the point is that belittling people who believe these things or um trying to argue with them in a way that is too aggressive is potentially actually counterproductive because in their narrative if you angrily try and force them to admit that they're wrong or angrily try and or, or try and forcibly change their belief when their belief stems from as you were saying earlier um overreaches of of authority in the past of abuses of authority in the past trying to force those people to abandon those beliefs is far more likely to um convince them that the government is out to get them again than it is to convince them that they're wrong the flip side of that is of course um when those conspiracy theories start to have an effect on other people uh if someone wants to believe that avril levine uh died and was replaced by a clone good for them that's not affecting anyone else that's not affecting me the problem with vaccinations and anti-vaxxers as a conspiracy theory is that that then has implications for the rest of us someone who refuses a vaccination and who is potentially carrying around a viral load that they can give to other people is now a danger to the people around them. and of course one of the key issues with uh, vaccination and the effectiveness of vaccination is that it relies on something called herd immunity which has been horribly misused in the press over the last year. Um, but effectively what herd immunity means is that in, if enough people are resistant to a disease, um, the disease cannot spread effectively and those people who are not resistant to it probably won't catch it because the disease is not widely in circulation. Uh, in the case of vaccinations, there are people who for perfectly legitimate reasons may not be able to get vaccinated um, because of allergies to specific ingredients in the vaccine or other underlying health issues, uh, or in some cases, age. And so those people rely on herd immunity and everyone else getting vaccinated in order to stay protected. So a useful theoretical construct with which to approach this problem is that of the harm principle. The harm principle is something that was mentioned by the classical liberal philosopher John Stuart Mill. Uh, and what the harm principle says is that the government should, on the whole, not interfere with people's actions and speech uh, unless they are causing harm to the liberties or the freedoms of others. So, for example, the government should have no right to tell me which car I should buy or what kind of car I want to buy. That's a purely personal decision which doesn't affect anyone else. It's not infringing on the liberties or the freedoms of, of other people. But the government does probably have a right to tell me not to drive that car at 100 miles per hour through a residential street uh, because I would then probably cause harm to someone else, uh, a child running between cars under the street to pick up their ball. The difficulty comes when we try to pin down exactly what harm is. So physical harm is fairly unambiguous. 
uh, if you cause bodily injury to someone else, then that is quite unambiguously harm. But when we consider speech, that's more tricky. Mill would generally say that speech doesn't count as harm, no matter how offensive or distasteful it is, because what people find offensive and distasteful uh, varies massively from person to person. But what Mill would say is that speech which obviously incites violence or speech which will predictably and clearly lead to bodily harm should be considered as harm in itself. Uh, The example that he gives is if you're in a dark theatre and you yell fire, you obviously know the outcome will be people panic, people stampede, people are going to get hurt in the rush to escape that darkened room. So in that case, the yelling of fire would constitute harm. And I guess the real question we have here with regards to uh, anti-vax theories and uh, people spouting anti-vax conspiracism is, does that constitute harm and should they be prevented from saying those things? And, well, it, it applies to actual taking of the vaccine as well, because arguably, um, if I am carrying COVID-19 and I go and wander around a pub and chat to lots of people and shake their hands and pass it on to them because I've refused to get the vaccine, um, I am causing physical harm to others. So that leads us to, to two separate kind of policy arguments, which is, A, does the government have the right and should the government... Um, force people, impose some sort of penalty um, to get vaccinated against COVID? Uh, And secondly, what does the government have the right to do, as you said, in the case of people um, supporting the anti-vax movement, in the case of people arguing that we shouldn't get the vaccine, arguing that the vaccine is dangerous for whatever reason? Yeah, and I think one of the most common counter-arguments to compulsory mandatory vaccination uh, is the idea that if you don't uh, if you don't feel safe going out in public uh, when people haven't been vaccinated that's your prerogative don't go out in public but that doesn't impose uh, an obligation on other people to to take the vaccine if they don't want to uh, I think the one of the main counter arguments to that objection is as I said previously with the concept of herd immunity some people legitimately cannot get vaccinated for various reasons, and they therefore rely on the bulk of other people to be vaccinated uh, in order to live reasonably free lives. I think it's also clear that in past examples where um, vaccination rates have dropped, uh, the UK in 2000, the US in 2005, uh, recently Romania in 2016, all of those with regards to the MMR vaccine, wider rates of, uh, of lethal diseases like measles have increased. So I think it is very clear to see that lower rates of vaccination do correspond with wider rates of mortality uh, in a society. I think that's a very important point you've made, because there is definitely an argument that if there's only a small number of people that haven't been vaccinated, and if the only people remaining who haven't been vaccinated are anti-vaxxers, then they've made their decision, and if they then get whatever disease it is we happen to be talking about, it's it's their choice, in much the same way that you might argue the government doesn't have the right to ban extreme sports that are really dangerous, like, I don't know, base jumping or stock car racing or something. Or really, um, any, or really any contact sport. Or any contact sport, because as long as people understand the danger they're putting themselves through, they have chosen to put themselves in that danger, and it's their decision, they're not going to harm anyone else. Um, 
But as you said, we've got to remember that there are vulnerable members of society who may not be able to get vaccinated and that it's, it's therefore incumbent on the rest of us to be vaccinated to protect those people. Um, I think people do accept quite extensive limits on the actions that they're allowed to take. Um, for example, most people would accept the, the need for a speed limit and the need to wear seatbelts. Um, but I think there is something viscerally different about vaccination, which is a very direct action to do with your to do with your body, which makes people more averse to it than many of the other restrictions we subject ourselves to daily in order to protect society at large. Seatbelts is possibly a bad example, actually, because I don't think that protects anyone except you. Uh, that is a good point. Um, Seatbelts aren't perfectly analogous to, to vaccines. Um, at this point, though, I think it is worth worth noting that a very common argument that people have raised against compulsory vaccinations is that if people don't feel safe going out, if others haven't been vaccinated, they should simply stay in in much the same way that if you don't feel you know safe driving, you should you just shouldn't drive. Uh, I think a crucial difference here is that. If you're if you're in a car and you're in an accident, that only affects two people. Whereas if you you know if people aren't vaccinated, that's not a singular instance of harm. That's something that would snowball analogous to you know you being in a car accident and then immediately hitting someone else or hitting three other people as a result of it. And as we were saying earlier, there is definitely uh, we or we need to remember that we all. Uh, start to take things for granted. We all take the status quo as given. And when they were introduced in the 1950s, actually, there was a lot of um, opposition to seatbelts as an impingement on liberty. Uh, But they've been the law for so long now that unless you're a sort of rebellious six-year-old, everyone wears a a seatbelt. It's not something that is um, generally considered to be an impingement on liberty. It's not something that's uh, at all controversial in society. Quite, quite interestingly, in the uh, in the 2016 Libertarian Party primaries in the USA, there was actually a very serious debate about whether driving licenses and seatbelts were were an infringement on liberty. But yes, all, all sensible people would agree seatbelts are are necessary restrictions on freedom. I enjoyed the fact that we've 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 decided that, that the anti-vax movement should not be. Um, needlessly insulted in this podcast, but the Libertarian Party is apparently fair game. Always fair game. (laughs) So my personal opinion, and I wouldn't say this is by any means objective truth, uh, is in the case of mandatory vaccinations, we should follow something akin to the Australian model, recognising that not not getting vaccinated causes harm, potential harm to other people, and the the restriction on liberty... Um, is is well outweighed by the reduction of risk to public health of making people get vaccines. I think a much trickier question uh, or a much trickier debate is the, the question of whether people should be allowed to spread disinformation about vaccines uh, or to publicly make anti-vax statements which question the efficacy of vaccines or say that they cause autism uh, or that there's some kind of government plot and thereby convince other people not to take them. This is obviously leading into a whole other conversation about um, freedom of speech and what it is and isn't acceptable to say and what it is and isn't acceptable for the government to dictate, we can say. But my initial feeling on it would be that um, people do have a right to express their own opinions because 
in this particular case, the, the, the scientific evidence, the truth is on the side of the government. Um, but that is not always the case um, in, you know, around the world, government after government, um, there are cases of governments proposing policies based on bogus evidence, of governments citing bogus evidence, of um, governments being beholden to the personal beliefs of powerful individuals within a certain political party who have nonsense beliefs. I mean, we've got plenty of examples of those. Um, and so giving the government the right to declare what is and what is not truth is dangerous, even though in this particular case they might be right. I think we do need to uh, we do need to worry about the precedent and the fact that in other future cases they may not be. Yeah, I think the a good way to think about free speech or uh, government restrictions on liberty is: Would you be happy with these restrictions or powers existing in the hands of your worst political enemies? And if the answer is no, they're probably not a good precedent to set. Um, I do think, though, that in the case of of anti anti vax conspiracism. It's a particularly interesting case because there are many, um, I guess you could say, examples of free speech which are clearly wrong, wantonly offensive, but don't really have the potential to cause physical harm. But if a significant number of people believe that vaccinations cause autism or that they don't work or that they're not effective or that they're a government plot and they don't get vaccinated as a result, that would then cause serious harm to public health. Another aspect of this, then, is whether the restriction on free speech should depend on the platform available to the person speaking. So if a, if a lone nutcase denies that vaccines are effective and they don't really have a significant audience, it's unlikely that what they say would encourage other people not to, you know, not to take the vaccine, and it's therefore unlikely that their speech would have a wider impact on public health. If, however, someone with a, a very large platform, Donald Trump until recently springs to mind, uh, says that vaccines don't work or that they're ineffective, that has the potential to convince a significant proportion of a population that vaccines don't work, they won't then take them, and that will then have serious public health ramifications. So one way of splitting the difference, perhaps, is that free speech should not be restricted for what we might call common individuals uh, or, or members of the general public, but they should uh, it should, in this case, uh, be restricted for people with a wide platform if they're encouraging things which would damage public health. And what does and does not constitute a breach of free speech is, I think, a whole podcast episode or two on its own. But broadly, I do think that we can sort of leave it at that conclusion, that different things are acceptable to say in different situations, and that the that the authority, whatever the authority in the situation might be, might have um, the right to step in when someone says something in a professional manner in a way that they don't in a personal manner. Um, to take the example away from vaccinations, you as a teacher have lots of things that you are perfectly at liberty to say uh, to your friends and your family, but which if you said in the classroom to your students, you could quite rightly be fired for. Yeah, which I think is, is perfectly fair because in my role as a teacher, I have a disproportionate influence on the way that my students think. And so there are certain political views, for example, I, I shouldn't air in the classroom uh, because that might unduly influence my students. Although if I said them to you, they would be perfectly acceptable. Uh, I think another, another element of this discussion, which of course we can't go into full detail here, is how distant uh, 
or how distant does the harm have to be from the speech in order to claim that the speech incited some degree of harm. So, for example, if I uh, told someone you, you should kill that person over there and encourage them to do it and paint them as a horrible person and they went and did it, I'm, I'm fairly culpable for my speech uh, in, exc- in inciting that physical harm. Uh, in the case of encouraging people not to take vaccines, that's a little more distant, but again, we could argue that there is a direct correlation between the speech and the eventual harm. Um, and again, this is this is a whole other podcast and, and many articles. But if we think about broadly the uh, the kind of discriminatory speech that politicians might engage in, um, could we say that that has led to the ultimate harm of racist attacks, for example, or in extreme cases, genocide? Um, or could we say, for example, that someone denying climate change is therefore liable for the very, very long-term impacts uh, of climate change when people don't act on it? These are tricky theoretical political questions which we can't really answer in a 40-minute podcast, um, but they're worth considering as extensions of this debate on free speech and where it should be restricted. Absolutely. But it's still true that there is a lot of misinformation out there Um, given that we have the luxury of free speech, there are a lot of people um, online and in real life espousing a lot of views on a lot of things. Um, And we are constantly nowadays bombarded with different opinions on all sorts of different issues and all sorts of different policies. So I guess the the conclusion to draw out of this, or, or perhaps the lesson to learn out of this, is the importance of having a basic understanding of the history of an issue, having a basic understanding of the science of an issue and um, coming to one's own conclusion and being able to tell with all of those uh, opinions and influences coming at you um, what is true. Yeah, and this is by no means an argument against free speech, which is incredibly valuable uh, in any society, but just an, an acknowledgement that there are many opinions and not all opinions are created equal it is important to dig a bit deeper uh, and look at the, the evidence, the reasoning, and how those conclusions are substantiated. And on that note, we would love to know your opinions too. So if you've got any thoughts or feelings or comments on this week's episode, or indeed any of our episodes or content on the website, please do get in touch with us, either through Twitter at at underscore the violet underscore, or on our website, uh, theviolet.net. Thanks for listening.